All right, New Life East, stand back up on your feet if you've taken your seat. And before we open the scriptures together, come on, come on, come on, up on your feet again, up on your feet. And let's declare our faith together this morning before we open the scriptures. Say it with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, and through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. And we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. If you can agree with that, say real loud. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good to see you this morning, New Life East. It's been a couple weeks. My wife and I were in Tulsa a couple weeks, weekends ago preaching and then at New Life North uh, last Sunday. If you're new with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, it's a joy to have you in our midst this morning. I uh, hope you like the new setup. We're just trying it on for size, shaking things up a little bit. And uh, please do tell us what you think about it at the end of the day. Uh, we're always trying to improve around here. So uh, we'll see uh, how this goes. But I certainly have enjoyed it. Uh, two things I need to say to you before we open the scriptures. I'll be in the book of Nehemiah chapter 3, by the way. So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, first of all, this is our fall launch Sunday, which is really a Sunday for us to just remember the mission that we're in and what God has called us to. I'll have some to say about that this morning in the message. But the real big thing is tonight, uh, here at 5, 5.30 p.m. right here at Grand Peak Academy, uh, we'll have our fall family meeting where we'll talk about all that the Spirit is up to in our midst, what God has been doing across the ministries of New Life East, and where we sense the Spirit leading us. And so uh, this is a meeting for you might be asking, like, who belongs to, if you're interested at all in what God is doing at New Life East, this meeting is for you. So whether you've been here one week, one month, or one year, this is your meeting. It's going to be a great time together. We will be serving you food. Uh, so we'll have pizza and some other things there. So you don't uh, come hungry and we'll feed you. So make sure to uh, be here tonight for that. Uh, the other thing to mention is uh, the women had a little retreat this past Saturday, led by our very own Becky Harling over here. Can we give it up for Becky Harling, who just led a great day, and the entire team that pulled it off, Mandy and Jenna and everybody, just an amazing day. Uh, men, I'm looking at you. We've got an event this coming Saturday for you. Same kind of deal, except it won't be all day. We're going to be at the Ponderosa Retreat Center. Yeah, what you can do, you see that QR code there. You can use your little portable handheld internet device. And you can do that, and it'll give you all the information. But it's this coming Saturday night. I'll have a word of exhortation for you. Andy and team are going to be leading worship, some ministry time together. We're bringing a roast pig in. 
if you're into that kind of thing. So please do sign up for that, and uh, it'll be a great Saturday night. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 3, by now we know the story of Nehemiah reasonably well. This book takes place after the city has been destroyed sometime during the 5th century uh, BC. There's a man by the name of Nehemiah who's living uh, in the court of the king, the citadel of Susa, and he's the cupbearer to the king. And when he hears about the devastation that's going on in Jerusalem, this is about 150 years or so after the exile, he hears about the devastation in Jerusalem, and the scripture says that he's cut to the heart by that in Nehemiah chapter 1, and he's moved to begin to entreat the Lord to do something about it. And the Lord basically says to him, how about you, Nehemiah? You do something about it. And so in Nehemiah chapter 2, then he goes to the king, and he starts having some conversation with the king about what's going on. And the king says, I bless you. Go ahead and do that. And so Nehemiah finds favor with God and with human beings, and he begins to take the journey back uh, to Jerusalem to assess what's going on there and to see if he can't rally the troops for rebuilding of the city. That's Nehemiah chapter 2. And now we come to this moment here in Nehemiah chapter 3. And so far in the book of Nehemiah, one of the things that we've really been exploring is what happens when we respond to the call of God. All of us have different callings that God has placed upon our lives. There are great overarching callings that he's given to us. There are also callings that he gives to us in every season of our lives. And so, so much of what we learn in Nehemiah isn't just about what was going on back there then, but what's always happening with us right here, right now. And so I want to make some remarks to you this morning about what happens when we respond to the call of God. Just what does it do? Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 1. The scripture says that Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work and they rebuilt the sheep gates. And they dedicated it and they set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. And the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasana. And they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired the next section. And next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. And the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Jehoiada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Baseada. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place, and next to them repairs were made by the men of Gibeah. I know you're sitting there thinking, he's really preaching out of this this morning? I think like the wrong Sunday to come to church. Just wait, just wait. Melatiah, son of Gibeon, and Jadon of Maranoth, place, uh, they were places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Uziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, he made repairs next to that. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall, and Raphiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, he repaired the next section, adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumaf, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabniah, made repairs next to him, and I went to seminary for three years and learned Hebrew, and so somewhere... I just hope that there's some Hebrew professor that's like, good job, Andrew. You did learn your lessons well. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashubnad, son of Pahath Moab, repaired the other section next to the tower of the ovens. And Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of the Hass district of Jerusalem, repaired the next, should, with the help of his daughter. Should we keep going? That's what you're supposed to say. It's the holy word of God. We're supposed to read all of the words in it, but for the sake of time, we won't. But I did want you to see one more verse. It's verse 20. We can uh, dial that up. The scripture says that next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, like this guy. What did he do? Say it real loud if you can see the text. Yeah, he didn't just repair, but he zealously repaired another section. 
from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, uh, the high priest, brothers and sisters, even this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're in our midst. We thank you that every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And so this morning we take refuge in the word of God himself, Jesus the Lord. We thank you that you're among us and that you speak to us. Paul said that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God may be equipped for every good work. And so we pray this morning as we meditate upon these texts that you would breathe upon us, Spirit of the living God, and that you would make us alive by these words of God. Come, wake us up to our several callings. Help us remember what we are here for so that we don't waste our lives on foolish things. Come, we pray. Come. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. I want to lift three observations from the text this morning as a way of encouraging you. Observation number one here, say that obedience to the call of God is galvanizing. Obedience to the call of God is galvanizing. All throughout the scriptures, we see this. You might remember Moses. He's out there taking care of the flock of Jethro, the sheep, on the backside of the wilderness in Midian. And he comes across. He's at Horeb, the mountain of God, one day. And he comes to that burning bush. And he sees that though the bush is burning, it doesn't burn up. And God speaks to him from within the bush and says, go deliver my people. And Moses, in response to that call of God, he goes back into Egypt and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship the Lord their God in the desert. And Pharaoh quite reluctantly eventually lets the people of God go. And millions of enslaved people walk out of their slavery and into freedom. Why? Because one person said yes to the call of God. It wasn't easy. There was nothing smooth about it. But Moses felt the provocation of the Lord in his heart, and he said yes, and sacred history went into motion. Or you think about the great story of David and Goliath, David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, and he hears that the Israelites have lined up against the Philistines, the Philistines who had been oppressing them. And there is this giant that comes for 40 days, the giant Goliath, is shouting taunts at the people of God, insulting not just them, but insulting their God. And David comes to the battle line to bring supplies to his brothers and he sees what's happening and he goes, this is unacceptable. We can't just let this guy taunt us and taunt our God. And so young, plucky little David, a teenage boy, he runs to the battle line and he says to Goliath, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I am coming at you in the name of the Lord of the hosts of Israel, whose name you have defamed. And I will kill you and I will cut off your head and all the nations of the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And he does just that. The obedience of one man puts this sacred history into motion. The Israelites are delivered again. And here we have Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah, a royal diplomat. All of a sudden, he feels cut to the heart about what's happening. And he 
lifts up his voice to the king and all of a sudden in obedience to the call of God, sacred history goes into motion. These people, as he begins to bring his plans to rebuild the city, he's got people coming in from five miles away, 10 miles away, 20 miles away, 30 miles away, on foot, leaving their lives and their families and their homes and their businesses behind because this thing is so important. And think about this, that the great promises of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all of those great promises that the city of God would one day be built by the sovereign hand of God, it starts happening. The promises start finding fulfillment in front of everybody's eyes. Why? Because one person said yes to God and all of a sudden the promises are being fulfilled. Friends, that's always how it happens that God moves upon one heart and that person takes a step of obedience and it's galvanizing. It brings people out of the woodwork and we see the promises of God go into motion. I think about one of my favorite figures from church history, Mother Teresa. Teresa, just a young Albanian girl growing up in the early part of the 20th century when she was a little girl. There was an, uh, a missionary from India that would come, an Irish missionary from India would come and he would start talking to the family about the stuff that the Lord was doing in India and somewhere Somehow along the line, little Teresa got it in her heart that that was what she wanted to do. But I want to go live among the poorest of the poor and I want to minister among them. And so when she becomes a teenager, she takes solemn vows and she makes the journey to the Loretto Abbey uh, in Calcutta, India. And she's there for several decades, ministering among the poor and teaching them and, and helping them. And something about their situation is just so moving to her. And as she's there in those early years of her ministry, she wants to do more for them. And in 1946, September of 1946, on the way to her annual retreat up to the mountains of Darjeeling, Teresa's on that train and she feels like the spirit weighing upon her in a, in a fresh way, saying, Teresa, I know that you've been obedient to this point and you've taught these people and you've loved these people. You've lived your life among them, but there's more for you to do. Leave behind the comfort of what you found yourself in and start moving out towards these people, like live your life among them, take good care of them. She said, it came to me as a call within a call. And so when she got back from her retreat, she started talking to her superiors, just like Nehemiah did. I've got these, these plans in my heart. What should I do? And she began to find blessing and help and provision around that. And pretty soon she left that little comfortable abbey, that comfortable convent. And she started just working among the poor. And we know her work now. By the time she died in the 90s, she had centers, the Missionary of Charity Center that she established in, in Calcutta was mimicked many times over in some of the poorest nations around the world, hundreds of them all over the world with thousands of women just like Teresa who had made a vow to take care of the sick and the suffering and the dying and to minister the power and the presence of God to them. How did it happen? One person, one person says yes to God and all of a sudden, it sets a whole series of things in motion. I think about when we got here to New Life five years ago. My wife and I were coming off of a church plant in Denver, and we got into this space. We came to New Life Church with no agenda to do anything other than serve and bless and help wherever we could. And one day, Pastor Brady popped into my office. Andrew, he said, been thinking a lot about the ministry of this church and what we're doing and what we're up to. He said, and I think that we need to have a church on the east side of the city. What do you think about that? And I said, well, Brady, I... I agree with you. We've got a couple good churches out there, but all the development in Colorado Springs is happening in that direction. I totally agree with you. We need to have, like New Life Church needs to have a congregation on the east side of the city. Who do you have in mind? How about you? No! <laughs> Coming off of 
eight years in Denver and our hearts were still raw and tender. And I don't know about that. Brady, we're still, it's all still so fresh for us. And I don't really know even what I want to do with my life anymore at this point. If, please, like, give me some time. He goes, take all the time you need. Just pray about it and see if the Lord doesn't provoke you in some way. And so Mandy and I took the better part of a year praying and discerning and talking with people that were close to us, just like Nehemiah did. It wasn't instantaneous. It was months and months of him prayerfully discerning what God was leading him to do. And after about a year, we came back around and we said to Brady, Brady, we don't like, I, there is no sense that we have that the Lord is calling us anywhere else or to do anything else. We're going to give you our yes. And so Brady's yes turns into Andrew and Mandy's yes. And pretty soon we start talking to the staff of New Life Church about it and all the congregations around New Life Church and people came out of the woodwork. And before too long, we had 300 people that said, oh, a mission to the east side of the city. Yeah, establishing a church on the east side of the city. Yeah, creating a space on the east side of the city where people can come and drink the presence of the Lord and hear the gospel and the saints can be, but yes, sign me up for that. I want to do that. And here we are. How did it happen? One yes always puts sacred history into motion. And I know that you're sitting there this morning, we're in this room and you're going, yeah, but Andrew, I'm not Moses and I'm not David and I'm not Nehemiah. And I'm certainly not Mother Teresa, and I'm not Pastor Brady. So I don't know, maybe this doesn't really apply to me, but I think that it does. Because I think that the Lord does not call us to be somebody else, but what the Lord does is he calls us into our lives to say yes. It's not about becoming somebody else. It's about living into the callings that we have received and saying yes to knowing that somehow sacred history depends upon those things. It's the space that God's given us and the responsibility that he's given us. When we say yes to what God is calling us to do inside the lives that he's given us, that's when sacred history starts to go into motion. I think about 11 falls ago, September of 2011, we were in our second year of ministry at the church in Denver and the church was ambling along happily at 50, 60, 70, 80 people. Nobody's doing big write-ups on the church in Denver. Nobody's doing big write-ups on Andrew's ministry in Denver. We were not part of the fastest growing churches in North America or anything like that. Off the radar, off anybody's screen. And yeah, we love those people so much. And I, those of you that are parents in the room, you know this feeling that when you see your kids, you, believe, like, you see more in your kids than they see in themselves. I mean, that's part of what makes you ache for them as a parent. You see what they could be. You see their potential. And Paul says of the Thessalonians believers, he says that we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you'd become so dear to us. And that's, from a pastoral standpoint, that's how you feel about the church, that they become like children to you and you see in them what they cannot see for themselves. And I remember that church sitting there at 80, 90, 100 people. I remember praying that summer about who we are and where we're going. And I remember just thinking, God has so much more for us than what we're seeing. And so I got up one September night in 2011. I stood up in front of the congregation and I said, Mandy and I love being here. We love you with all of our hearts. And we love what the Spirit is up to in our midst. And we couldn't be more thrilled but we think that you have more inside of you than you realize. We think that there's some kind of unusual greatness in this church. And we're willing to give ourselves completely in a fresh way, a re-upped kind of way. We're willing to give ourselves completely for that mission if you're willing to step up with us and help us. And it was something about that, like just the clearing of the smog out of the atmosphere and saying, like, we're going to do, will you do this with us? 
It drew everybody out of the woodwork. And there was something about that moment. It was like the spark that lit the fire. And all of a sudden the community starts growing. And before too long, we were a community of four or 500 people ministering in the heart of downtown Denver. Some of the hardest places. How did it happen? It's one yes in the space that God has given us. I don't know what callings God has laid upon your life. I don't know what kinds of spaces God has given you, what kinds of responsibilities he's handed over to you. But the moment you begin to say yes, as scary as it is, I promise you, what you'll see is that that yes will have a galvanizing effect. And it's not just big things like churches or businesses, but it's little things, the relationships that you've been given. I think of some of you students that are sitting here. What's the yes that God is asking of you in your school with your friends and the people that you're connected to? That yes that like haunts you in the night. That you know that the moment you say yes to it, it's going to create something and you're not sure where it's going to take you. Say yes to it. Because your school needs it. Or I think about those of you parents in this room, husbands and wives. I think about Mandy and I have been married 22 years. Our kids are 16 all the way down to 10. And I think about the many times in our family history when something about the drift of our marriage or something about the drift of our family just not going the way that it needed to go. And one of us, either Mandy or I, Mandy or me, would stand up and we would go, do you know what? The way that this is working right now and like the way that this is flowing, this is unacceptable. This is not what God wants for us. This is not what God wants for our family. And so I'm unwilling to tolerate it anymore. We're going this direction. Who's coming with me? And something about that just shakes the junk out of the family. The family wakes up again to the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Each one of you in this room is called to be a leader in the space that God has given you. And you don't need to wait around for it. It's just a matter of you responding to the call of God. And I promise you, it will be galvanizing. Number one, obedience to the call of God is galvanizing. Number two, I'd say to you this morning, that there are times when the call of God demands that we transcend who we think we are. Everybody say, who we think we are. There are times when the call of God demands that we transcend who we think we are in order to answer it. One of the fascinating things about this chapter here, Nehemiah 3, is that while Nehemiah goes out of his way to mention all of these people, so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did that, and such-and-such came along and helped us with this, and such-and-such came along and helped us with that, he doesn't just name their name. But he also goes out of his way to name their occupations. Think about it. This is Nehemiah 3 and verse 1. The scripture says that Eliashib, the what? The high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. The high priest and his fellow priests. This is like the group of people that are responsible for the sacerdotal functions of the community, right? They're responsible for setting out bread and wine and oil and keeping candles lit. These are folks that are not normally known for their work in masonry and wielding heavy objects. They don't have calluses on their hands, do they? But they hear the call of God and they respond to it. Next verse. Uziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, what did he do? Yeah, he was a perfume maker. Again, I don't know how the occupation of perfume making worked back in those days, but I assume that these also weren't the most fitted people to rebuild walls. This is a tender sort of group of people, you know. But they jump right in with all their heart. They made repairs next to that. And then this next verse, check this out. 
Raphael, son of Hur, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, he repaired the next section. So he's one of the elites of society. And then this verse, the dung gate. Everybody's favorite gate. <laughs> the dung gate was repaired by Melchizedek, son of Rechab. And what was he? He was a ruler of the half district of Bethachar. Again, one of the elites of society. He jumps in with both feet into the dung gate. Kind of a mess over there. Gets his feet dirty. His hands dirty. He gets to work, doing the work. That's how it works, guys. That when the call of God comes to us, it transcends who we think we are to answer it. These people probably, while they were doing their work, they would have wished to have been known for something else. Yeah, remember me that I was a ruler. Remember me that I was a goldsmith. Remember me that I was a really good perfume maker. But what we remember them for is that the call of God came to them and they were some of those that rebuilt the wall. They transcended who they thought they were to answer the call of God. Think about the three books here in the Old Testament that Nehemiah is a part of. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra, who helped rebuild the foundations of the temple. Do you remember what he was? He's a scribe. He's a scholar. And yet all of a sudden he's overseeing the work of the city. Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. Esther, what was she? She's just a pretty little Jewish girl that gets brought into the court of the king. And when her people were facing certain annihilation, all of a sudden Esther, this teenage girl, stands up to the king and says, I don't think that we should do it that way. And we remember her name because of it. Guys, when the call of God comes to us, we don't, what we don't do is do an assessment of ourselves. Okay, well, interesting, yes. I mean, I've done uh, the, my spiritual gifts assessment and I know my Enneagram and my Myers-Briggs and hear my experiences and so I think I'm fitted for this. No. The call of God comes to us. We assume that God knows what he's doing when he calls us. And so we just say yes to it. And we find that in the process, God makes us more than we would have made out of ourselves if we were left to ourselves. Are you with me this morning? I think about my own story. I, most of you know I'm born and raised in the church and I remember being five or six years old, sitting in services like this. And I would watch my pastor preach when I was growing up. And in that way that you identify a calling, five, six, seven years old, I'm watching my pastor preach. And I remember going, that, whatever he's doing, that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And as time went on, you know, in that way that life has a way of kind of throwing a wet blanket upon your sense of calling, life threw a wet blanket on my sense of calling. Things that I went through, things that I experienced, things that I did, so I went through my teenage years, kind of emerging self-awareness of who I was, how I was wired, what I liked to do, what I didn't like to do. And I remember getting to college and I remember thinking, I still kind of felt that tug of the Lord in my heart that this is how you're supposed to invest your life. This is what I'm asking you to do. And yet I remember just thinking, God, but you got the wrong guy. But I don't want to do that. I can't be that, that guy. And I remember getting to college. I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'm a business student there. And I remember sitting in chapels week after week after week. And I'd see these people who had gifts, public gifts of ministry that the Lord was using. And I'd feel that kind of tug in my spirit. I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And yet this other part of me going, but I can't, that's not, that's not me. And I remember being in a fight with God about it one morning, early in the morning in prayer. And I'm saying, I'm feeling that pull of the spirit. And I feel the Lord say to me, Andrew, this is how I want you to invest your life. And I remember saying to God, God, I can't, that's, you've got the wrong guy. Like, you know where I come from. You know who I, I don't have any pastors in my family. I don't have any ministry types in my family. I've got no connections that would open doors for me. And you know the things that have been done to me and you know the things that I've done 
but I'm not, I'm not your guy. Furthermore, I'm a business student. Do you ever use business students in ministry? I don't, I'm, I'm not your guy. God, I'm belly aching to the Lord. Furthermore, Lord, you know about my temperament and you know my disposition. I don't want to do that stuff. And I remember being in this fight with God all the way into class that morning. I had economics class at 9.50 on a Tuesday morning. And I'm coming up the back way out of the commuter lot into the student center. And I swear, God is my witness. I could tell you the step that I was standing on, belly aching to the Lord about my life and who I was and what I was and what I wasn't. And I remember taking this one step up into the student center and I heard the Lord say to me as clearly as he's ever spoken to me in my entire life, don't you think I knew about those things when I called you? Don't you think I knew about those things when I called you? Like, Andrew, aren't you think that any of that, like, you think that that's some great mystery to me? Your temperament, your disposition, your history, your connections or lack thereof, you think that any of that is some kind of obstacle? To, furthermore, do you think that I'm caught off guard by that as though I have to adapt to who you are? Isn't it just possible, Andrew? that I've actually perfectly calibrated who you are and what you are and where you come from so that you can do the thing that I've asked you to do. Like maybe the scripture is right when it says, Acts 17, that he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Isn't it just possible that you are exactly the person I need you to be to do exactly the things that I've called you to do? Don't you think I knew about those things when I called you? And if I'd been left to my own devices, Andrew Arn is a very different person than the person that he is now. It's not me assessing who I am and what I want to do that takes me out. It's me just saying yes to the call of God. And I do think that in the church, sometimes we just get a little bit fussy about it. We get a little bit fussy with God about what God can or cannot ask us to do. The call of God comes to us and we go, God, we can't, I can't do that. Don't you know that I'm an Enneagram four with a five wing? Myers-Briggs, INFJ. By the way, that's me. But I can't do those things. It would be inauthentic, God, for me to give myself to those things. And God is like, who, who makes man? Who gives man his personality, his temperament, his gifts? Who puts breath in his lungs? Who puts life in his body? Who makes human beings the way that he makes them? It's me. Just say yes to me, guys. God is calling you to something. I don't know what it is, but you better say yes to it. And as you say yes to it, your life will become more than it would be if you were left to yourself. Can you receive that this morning? But I'll say something else to you. It's not just about our callings out there in the world, but it's also our calling in here to be the people of God and how God wants to use us inside the church. See, I think that if you're a baptized member of the body of Christ, then the first place, that's for all of us, not just pastors and ministry types, but the first place where our callings are expressed are inside the church. Just as the tithe of our time is the Sabbath day, the day of worship, and the tithe of our resources, 10% goes to the house of God. So the best part, the tithe of our talents and our gifts and our energies comes into the house of God. And we don't really get to determine ahead of time how God wants to use us. He'll just use us. It's about the call coming to us. Think about the start of New Life East when we were planning for it three falls ago. Now, we began the planning process and the launch process. And I remember sitting down with a guy by the name of Dan Malinarek. In all those launch meetings, Dan was one of the guys that came out of the woodwork. He said, hey, I'd love to, we've been at New Life forever. I'd love to sit down and grab coffee with you and just 
tell you our story and then just ask you how maybe we can contribute. And so I got coffee with Dan over at the Starbucks at the shops at Briargate. And we sat down and Dan told me about their 25, his, 25 year history here at New Life Church, all the things that they've done and all the things that they've seen. And he told me a bit about his career. And Dan, one of the muckety mucks at a microchip company here in the Springs. I mean, a big wig, you know, a guy that the cream of the cream, you know, and furthermore, a guy in the church that had seen it all and done it all. And him and Miriam had led and discipled people for many, many years. They're in their fifties and, you know, and so Dan is looking across the table for me, he tells me all of this and he goes, so Andrew, what do you need us to do at New Life East? I said, well, Dan, we need everything at New Life East is what we need. But if you're asking me honestly, the most important thing that we're going to do when we begin to gather is we're going to gather here at Grand Peak Academy and it's going to be a huge effort to pull that off. All the volunteers that we're going to have to organize the setup and the teardown and keeping people on task and on mission and keeping them motivated for what we're doing. And I would not normally ask a person of your age and your experience and you're working 60, 70 hours a week at your job. I wouldn't normally ask somebody like you to do something like this, but you asked me what we need. And so I'm telling you what we need. I need somebody who's willing to help out on Saturdays, setting out signs and getting the team organized and showing up here early in the morning and staying until the team is done in the afternoon, tearing everything down. Would you and Miriam be willing to consider that? And Dan, without batting an eyelash, without thinking about it goes, oh yeah, absolutely. We got it. We'll organize it for you. We've got your back, Andrew. And like, so we're here because of people like Dan and Miriam Malinarek who gave themselves like these people did in Nehemiah, gave themselves to the work of God, not regarding their gifts and their temperament and their abilities and not getting too fussy about themselves, not looking at what he does for a living and going, well, you know, I really am very invested over there, so I can't really help you. Just jumped in and helped create a space where people can know and experience the presence of God. Friends, God is moving in this community. He's healing blind eyes and opening deaf ears. People are being reconciled to God. The poor are being lifted up and the hungry are being fed. Ministry, the ministry of the Spirit is taking place every single week in this house. And God's calling you to be a part of it. Jump in with both feet. Can you receive that this morning? And so obedience to the call of God is galvanizing. And, the, and obedience to the call of God often demands that we transcend who we think we are to answer it. And final point that I want to make to you this morning is that one of the principal reasons that we hold ourselves back from the work of God among the people of God is it's pride. Watch this. This is Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 5. So here is this chapter of Nehemiah, which many scholars think originally started out as Nehemiah's report back to the king. This is Nehemiah saying, hey, by the way, we got started and the work is going pretty good. And look, here are all of these people who have done these amazing things, King. He's like writing letters of commendation about these things. But watch this. He singles out one group of people among the people of God and says that the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But who? Yeah, say it real loud. It's not rhetorical church. But who? Their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Why wouldn't their nobles put the sho their shoulders to the work? Because they're too good for that. 
oh, we're the nobles of Tekoa. Yeah, I mean, maybe like everybody else can jump in and help and serve and be over there at the dung gate getting their hands dirty. Yeah, maybe that's good for everybody else, but not us. So you, do you know what, what it took us to get to this place in life? We're the nobles of Tekoa. We paid our dues and we've done our thing. And so that's good enough for everybody else, but we're not going to put our shoulders to the plow underneath the work of the supervisors. And the fascinating thing about this text, by the way, is that word there for supervisors is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the same word that's translated Lord in the Hebrew scriptures. And so if you look at all the different translations of of Nehemiah chapter three and verse five, what you'll note is that scholars are divided on whether we should translate this as they wouldn't put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors or they wouldn't put their shoulders to the work under the Lord. But it seems to me that the ambiguity is intentional. That to the extent that we're too good to submit ourselves to what's happening inside the church, we also are too good to submit ourselves to whatever it is God is up to. And we have this way, these are the, these are the nobles, we have this way sometimes of talking Where we started out maybe as disciples, we were giving of our tithes and our resources, but we get to a place in life where all of a sudden we're no longer that. What we are now is philanthropists, right? Or it used to be that we invested ourselves among the people of God, discipling them and raising them up, but we're not really that anymore. We have more charitable work that we do out there in the world, and so we're humanitarians now, right? Or I used to lead teams and help out at church and all of that, but I don't really do that anymore because I've seen that I have gifts that are galvanizing gifts. And so now I leverage them more on social media. What I am is, uh, I know you know it, I'm an influencer. And to the extent that we believe that about ourselves, we are very far from the heart of God. Watch what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus has been undertaking this great work and the great work of his cross and resurrection is about to take place. And all of a sudden, the nobles of Tekoa rear their ugly heads again. A dispute rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And Jesus said to them that the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercised authority over them called themselves benefactors, humanitarians, philanthropists, influencers. But what does Jesus say? You are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is, not, is it not the one who is with you at the table? But I, Jesus says, am among you as one who what? If ever there was nobility in the history of the cosmos... It was when the second person of the Trinity clothed himself in human flesh and stood among us. And when he did, he did not behave as the nobles of Tekoa, keeping himself at arm's length, keeping himself at a distance. But when he came among us, Paul says in Philippians, that he came among us as a servant and he poured out his life unto death and thereby we are saved. And we are most like Jesus when we do the same. Can you say amen this morning, church? Would you stand and let's prepare our hearts for communion. This morning is a morning for us to hear the call of the Spirit into the church. 
and into what God is doing in our midst. It's a moment of rededication. And so church, I want you to do something this morning. I want you to lift up your hands like this. You're holding your life here in the palms of your hands. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's what we're doing. And so I want you now to hold all that in your hand, all that you are, all that you have, all that you possess. And I want you to begin to surrender it up to the Lord. And so we say, Lord, have your way in our lives. Have your way in our lives. We thank you for the high call of God in Christ Jesus to serve you and to serve our neighbors, to serve our families, to love and to bless the world with all that we are and all that we have. We thank you that that call is taking us deeper and deeper into the very heart of life. And we pray this morning that there'd be no resistance to that call, but openness, willingness. That we'd be like Mary, the mother of God. I am the Lord's servant, she says. May it be to me as you have said. And therefore we remember her name because of her yes. Would you make us like that? Would you give us a hunger and a thirst and a willingness to throw ourselves into all that you're doing for the glory of God and the good of the world. Grant this, we're praying. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. We're gonna take communion a little bit differently this morning. We're gonna have four communion stations set up right here, right here, right here, and right here. And as we sing the song of worship in response, we're gonna invite you to empty out through the right side of your row. So like this row here will come forward. Come and receive your elements and circle back around to your seat, but hold on to them. And when our song of response is done, we'll all take communion together. And by the way, if you need gluten-free elements, we also have those for you. So just indicate that for your server. Friends, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come on forward and receive communion. Every breath we can ever breathe, we live for you. 
New Life East with those elements in your hand. We're reminded that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. Would you take that bread and would you break it? He took that bread and he broke it to be a symbol of what would happen to his body, that he himself would be crushed for us. The ultimate act of what it looks like to serve, to lay down one's life, Jesus does for us. And he said, every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? New Life East, would you take and would you eat? That same night he took a cup He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. It was a foreshadowing that he would one day, within hours, he would hang on a cross. Blood would be spilled so that our sins, our iniquities would be washed away. New life east, would you take and would you drink? Now, would you respond in worship by singing the doxology? Come on and lift your hands like this. Receive this benediction as you go, family. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. So good to see you. I'm going to invite our altar ministry team Uh, They'll be at the edges here of our auditorium. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray for you. Remember to grab a devotional on the way out, one per household. Join us for fellowship hour here, coffee and donuts out in Connect Central. And tonight at 5.30, family meeting. We'd love to see your faces there. Grace and peace be with you. See you soon.